Good morning. Boys, we gather in worship. Of course, we have those with us here in the sanctuary, those joining online, and those in the 901 service. And as we are in our second week of Advent, uh, before we dive into our text, I want to give you a quick little update uh, on some stewardship numbers. A lot of people have heard this over the years. This is true of many churches in America. This is interesting. 20% of all the giving that comes in over the whole year comes in simply in the last month of the year. Imagine if you had to live that way, not knowing how much your salary or pay was going to be throughout the whole year, and you knew that perhaps 20% of it would come in. Well, part of the reason why we switched our fiscal year to not coincide with the end of the calendar year is so that we could, in some ways, make half-time adjustments. For you sports fans, you know coaches have to make half-time adjustments. If the first half doesn't go as planned, you've got to make adjustments for the second half. Well, we're not yet through the halfway point of our fiscal year. That will be at the end of December. But just want to let you know, right now we're on pace to be 12.5% behind where we budgeted. But at the same time, 20% of all that comes in typically comes in over the next four weeks. So a lot of it is unknown. So as we, as a church, lean in together, let's see how we can finish this calendar year so that we don't have to make those huge half-time adjustments, so that we don't have to cut back ministry. But as a reminder, we've got a great opportunity as followers of Jesus Christ to invest not only in what God is doing in and through this church, but just to invest our lives. It's so much more than just finances. It's, it's our time. It's our talents. It's our treasure. And as we give ourselves, we also look forward to 2016 where we pledge, God, use me, spend me on behalf of the things that you love the most in this new season. Just a quick little update. We every year have our pledge opportunities where people pledge what they intend to give in the next year. Just over 330 individuals have pledged to give next year. 81 of those are first-timers who are newer to this church or at least newer towards pledging which is great excitement that more people are, are saying, God, use me here. I'm excited. I want to be part of this group of people that are following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And many of you, you haven't had the opportunity yet to pledge for next year. Well, in your pews, and if you're joining online, there's a way you can do this on the website. You can follow the links where it says give on the top, or even if you're in the 901 service, we have cards that are our stewardship card. If you haven't filled that out, don't just pull up, fill out a number, but, but take it home. Pray about it. Pray, God, how would you use me? How would you spend me on behalf of what you're doing in and through this church family in the next year? Also on that stewardship card, again, it's in the pews and in the 901, it's in the back. You can look on the back side, there's our values. We're asking that people not just give finances, but they would give their strengths whether it's in hospitality or courage or health or community or impact, you can help us grow in those areas. You're also committing, if this is your church family, I've talked about this the month of November and, December, and October, that you would commit to growing in the value that's your weakest. If you need to grow in hospitality or courage or health or community or impact, to commit to that is part of your pledge that we would grow together as a family of God. But what an exciting season as we gather and worship on our second week of Advent. We're in the middle of a series called Two Advents. In fact, many people have emailed and they've asked, what do you mean two Advents? There's four weeks. What do you mean two Advents? Are you not going to do the last two? No, 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 no. 
still four weeks of Advent. We're going to go all the way through the Sunday before Christmas. But again, as it was referenced earlier, at least in the the 9 a.m. service, Advent means arrival. And typically we understand the first coming of Jesus, His incarnation, His birth as as an infant, as the first arrival, the first Advent. But there's another Advent to come where Jesus will come again. And there's so much confusion. In some ways, there's so much mystery. In some ways, it causes, perhaps for some, so much fear to to talk about the second advent. Some people are saying, why on earth, Drew, are you teaching out of Revelation during the Christmas season? Well, when we are properly understanding what Jesus began at His first advent, And what he will bring to completion after his second advent, it gives us amazing hope and peace and joy and love and strength today as we live in this space, as we live in the historical continuity in the space between the first and the second advent. Last week, Pastor Mike Morgan, the newest member of our pastoral team, preached. It was great for me while I was traveling to be with family in Texas. I was able to stream and join that service live. But let's give thanks for Mike Morgan for preaching. I know it was great. I was sharpened. I was encouraged. And as he considered, what's life going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth? Today, we're going to take a look at what are we going to do for all of eternity? And when you think about that question, that that concept, that idea, how you answer that question, what are we going to do in heaven? How you answer that question absolutely transforms what you do today. And so I asked the the team here to, to ask that question, what do you think we'll do in heaven? So some of you have been asked. Some people who were down on the street were asked, and so we've got a nice little cornucopia of perspectives here. Why don't we take a look at the screen? What are we going to do in heaven? Take a look. Well, I hope we're relaxing. That's the only thing I can really think of. Um, Enjoying the new bodies or form that we're going to be in. And seeing a difference in how life would be in a spiritual form. Having fun, I like to dance, so just be going crazy and having fun. The image I get is like some type of paradise. And like, just everything is like moving, like cooperating together and like, everything is one. One of the greatest things, I mean the greatest, most wonderful thing is I'm going to see God. I'm going to be in His presence and Jesus, I mean that is, that would be enough. I'm hoping there will be a disco dance party as well up in heaven. I can just see it. I'm going up to heaven and the disco music is playing. I hope that when I get there, I'll get a chance to meet the rest of my family that I haven't met before and uh, catch up with those that I've lost, Um, particularly have a chance to play golf again with my father. I think it's just going to be this, I don't know, just endless discovery. I think it would be really awesome just to, you know, continue to say like, oh, be inspired by that or hey, I didn't know that. What we'll be doing in heaven is what we're meant to do, what we love to do, like our God-given talent. So, I mean, with me, I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, songwriter, so honestly, I think my version of heaven, I will be doing what I love to do, which is creating, making music. Well, I think we tend to think of heaven as just going to be one never-ending church service with 
slow music and reverent and everything, and I think it's going to be the complete opposite of that. We tend to think of earth is here, heaven is here, but really it's sort of like that. There's sort of an intersection where the best of earth is a glimpse of what we're going to have later on in heaven. We are going to praise God when we get to heaven. We are going to be happy. There'll be no sickness there. There'll be no sadness there. Um, I just expect to go before his throne and for him to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Uh, on Sundays, I think it'd be kind of cool to hang out and just do what God intended you to do, is rest and have fun and watch football. <laughs> I think we're gonna learn that the jobs that we honor here on earth and the kids want to grow up to be the doctors and the lawyers and the policemen we don't need them in heaven they're useless they have nothing to do but the actors and the writers and the artists and the gardeners and the chefs and the dancers are all going to be valuable in heaven that's what we're going to do God's probably preparing for like um, everyone to come down to earth, like kind of make heaven and earth one. So we'd probably be like kind of helping with that, I guess. I love it, I love it. Well, as we get these pictures, these snapshots, you know, even in the room that I'm in here now in the sanctuary, there was some chuckling, you know, it's interesting. You know, we have a wide variety of what we're gonna spend all of eternity doing. In fact, the average American has a completely wrong view. In fact, I'll go so far to say that the average Christian has the completely wrong view as to what we're going to spend eternity doing. The only right view comes from Scripture. The wrong view comes from Plato. And you have no idea how much Plato has dramatically influenced our view of heaven. In fact, Scripture says that heaven is not someplace somewhere else. In fact, if you can find one verse that says that we're going to spend Scripture or spend eternity, just one verse in Scripture that we'll spend eternity somewhere else, come let me know because it's not here. But Plato had this view as a Greek philosopher that the body and the soul were two separate things and that heaven was going to be the spirit, the soul experiencing eternity somewhere else. And this view of thought actually began to pervade into Christianity in the first few centuries, a completely different view of what Scripture says. The truth is, is that we're not going to spend eternity up in the clouds. We're not going to spend eternity in some disembodied state. We're not just going to be floating in the ether out there. But Scripture says that the heavens will come down and God will dwell with us here. A very real, a very material, a very tangible eternity. And that changes everything. Because it's absolutely incorrect to say that this earth will one day, as the, the hymnist wrote in, in uh, Amazing Grace, the earth will not one day dissolve like snow. As we sing an amazing grace in the sixth verse, many hymnals actually took that verse out because it's not true. That's not what Scripture says. 
Let's see, what does Scripture say? Why don't you open up those Bibles? We're going to go to Revelation 21, and we're going to go to verse 10. It's on page 1008. We're on the second to last page in our Pew Bible. If you're joining online or if you're in our 901 service, however you'd like to access that, or if you have a mobile device, we're in the New Revised Standard Version. We'll read a little lengthier section of Scripture, and it's Revelation 21, beginning verse 10. I'm going to go all the way to verse 26. Hear this, this is God's Word. And in the Spirit, He carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations. And on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, sec- the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass." I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory of and honor of the nations. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. So we have this picture here of a future reality that has absolute relevance for today. So John, who, inspired by the Spirit, knows that he is writing to an audience of people that are facing tremendous persecution. They have no idea if they're going to last through the night. So great was the persecution in the first century. They needed not only hope, but they needed peace. With absolute fear, not knowing if they were going to survive, if they were going to be killed for their faith, they actually had to have tremendous hope and peace for the moment. And John gives a picture of a future reality that gives absolute peace for today. And how much do we need that? Living here in this troubling times, in the midst of all the uncertainty of life, in the greatest terror attack on American soil since 9-11 happened right down the freeway, we absolutely need peace. And you're going to hear messages of hope, you're going to hear messages of peace throughout all the world. You're going to hear it on the news tonight, 
You're going to read about it in the newspapers. You're going to hear it by the water cooler. But Scripture reminds us that the greatest peace we can ever find is found right here. And it's not some ethereal, far-off kind of like, let's just imagine that we're going to be somewhere else so we don't have to think about today. No, you see, when we understand the future reality that all of us are going to experience as followers of Jesus Christ, that it absolutely transforms this moment. It gives us a foundation. It gives us a peace. It gives us a strength. It gives us a hope. It gives us a courage to take every step of life faithfully towards the future. You know, some of you have heard me tell this story. When I was a kid, whenever I used to read books, I would be in the midst of it. It was usually the hardy brothers' books. You know, like halfway through, I, I think that one of the brothers would get, would get killed, and I'd get, I'd get a little nervous. I'd get anxious. And what is anxiety? What, you're actually you're envisioning something that will play out that isn't what you want. Worry is envisioning that something will play out that, that will cause you fear or discomfort. And so I would have anxiety, I would have worry because I would play out what was happening in the middle of the story and I would think that by the end, one of the Hardy brothers was going to die. There goes the series. And so what would I do? I would cheat. I would flip to the end. Oh, where's his name? Where's his name? I didn't need to know the details. I just had to see the name of one of the brothers. It, oh, oh, okay. All I had to do was see the name, not the details, but I was able to then flip back to the same point that I was just a moment ago anxious in. A moment ago, I was worrisome. In the moment ago, I had no courage in. And because I knew it was going to be a happy ending, it gave me absolute courage and peace and hope in the moment. And that's what Scripture does for us. This isn't just about what has happened. This is about what absolutely will happen. You see, an ancient view of the world said that you can not only remember the past, but you could also remember the future. This is not about time travel. This is about the God who is outside of time, who is in the eternal now, stepping outside of eternity into our present and letting us know it's going to be all right. And there's such an absolute picture of joy and of peace and of goodness that we get from Scripture about what we're going to experience for all of eternity that it should absolutely change how we see life today. In fact, I don't have time to read all of it, but Isaiah chapter 60. You know, we've actually left some extra room in the bulletins for you to take notes. Write down Isaiah 60 in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. If you read through that, it is the exact same perspective of this section of Revelation Many, many years prior from the prophet Isaiah, because God was speaking through all of them, and it goes into greater detail as to what it looks like for the nations to bring their glory for the splendor of the Lord. And it goes into so much detail, it talks about how there's not going to be any violence. The rest of Revelation talks about how God will wipe away our tears from our eyes, that we will beat our swords into plowshares, that all the violence that we are seeing today is temporary compared to the everlasting peace that God will give us, and we can actually have hope now in this moment, that we don't have to be filled with fear, that we know that God absolutely has the last word. Though we don't know all the details, all the nuances, Scripture says that our names are written in the book of life. 
And we can go back in a sense to this moment in time and actually have hope. We can have courage. We can have peace for today. But today I want to talk about work and play briefly. What are we going to do for all of eternity? And how we understand that actually changes how we work and how we play today. I had somebody say to me recently this week that, well, work, that's kind of after the fall, right? Actually, there's a picture of work before the fall. Pull those Bibles out, whether you're here or in 901 or online. Go to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, the very first picture we have of work is not filled with toil. It's before it is referred to as labor. Isn't it interesting we use the same word for both work and childbirth, labor? Well, it's because we live after the fall, but before the fall, it was great and glorious and joyful. Take a look at this. In Genesis chapter 2, first let me back up and I'll give some context. Verse 8, chapter 2, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Pause there. The very fact that we have a God who plants a garden goes against almost every other religion in the world. In fact, there's many religions that say that the physical realm is an illusion. There's some religions that say the physical body is dirty, so that God transcends all of that, as other religions say. But actually, the God that we are introduced to in Scripture is the only God who is willing to get God's hands dirty. God is a gardener, God who creates, God who shapes, God who pulls out of nothing everything. And it goes on, and it says, if you go down to verse 15, the Lord God took this first human, the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Pause there. Some translations to say, to care for and to cultivate it. Now, we have a picture in Scripture of a God who brings order out of chaos. For every human being who's ever been born, whoever will be born, every single human being, Scripture said, is made in the image of God. And the reality is that the very essence of what it means to be made in the image of God is to participate with God, to be like a, kind of like a subcontractor, a sub-creator that joins God in bringing order out of chaos. So a biblical point of view of work is this is that no matter what work you do, no matter how menial you think it is, it actually has tremendous value. Whether it's schoolwork or yard work or housework, all of that actually is an opportunity to live out what it means to be made in the image of God. Do you realize that when you do your laundry, the thing that so many people hate to do, oh, I gotta do, I gotta do that again that literally folding your clothes, putting it away into your drawer to hang it up in your wherever you hang it, rather than just kind of letting it dry and just throwing it in the corner, to do all of that, to bring order out of chaos is actually living out what it means to be made in the image of God. As you put up your Christmas decorations, and I know that many of you, you know, you're really good about, you know, packing it in the year before very nicely, but some of you, perhaps like me, you kind of just dump it in, you know, eventually I'll learn. But maybe some of you are like me and you pull it out and there's all this tangle and all this mess. 
As you untangle all those cords, as you undo all those things, you could approach it, oh, this is just so frustrating. I wish I was doing something better, more meaningful. Actually, in that moment, you were bringing order out of chaos. Do you realize that every time you brush your hair, you're bringing order out of chaos? It's true. We overlook so many what we call mundane moments of life, but all the work that we do in life, every little moment of it actually has tremendous value. Whether you're a street sweeper or a trash collector or an investment banker, whether you're crunching the numbers, whether you're writing a script, whether you're trying to work the right movement in that, that, that piece, whether you're trying to find the right melody, whatever it is, all of that is tremendously meaningful. It has value. And all the work that we do as human beings is actually because we're made in the image of God, a God who brings order out of chaos. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would approach the work that we do, even if we think it's meaningless, to see that this actually has tremendous value. And when we begin to have that perspective, we will see the work that other people do around us, whether they're Christian or not, we'll see that it has absolute value. Because the truth is this, before you can give thanks for your daily bread, somebody had to have baked it. Are you thankful for the person that made your pants, your skirt, your shoes, that paved the road that you drove on to be here today? that designed the computer screen that you're watching this service on. You see, we take for granted so easily all the things in life that other people have made. But the very reality is that we're part of the human race. We are so interconnected. And there's this picture in Scripture that says that all the nations will have an opportunity to bring the glory before God. All of the work that they do for His glory, for His sake. You see, we are part of such an interconnected web of human beings that have bringing the very stamp of what it means to be made in the image of God, and we experience that, and yet so many of us, we take it for granted. What would it look like for us to be a church to only va find value in the work that we do, far beyond our occupation, but also the work that other people do? Be absolutely transforming. But even more than that, we can just focus on work and say, well, what does God long for us to do? It's so much more than what we do. It's also how we do it. You see, the very idea of cultivating is this, that God longs for us to take the raw potential of all that He's created, whether it's notes in music, whether it's human language, whether it's the physical earth, whether it's ingredients for food, it's to take all the raw potential of all those things and to transform it for the flourishing of others. So when you take the raw ingredients of all these things and you make it a phenomenal Christmas dinner, that brings glory to God. When you take the raw ingredients of, of sound and of tone and of human voice and, and you're able to create music, you take the raw potential of what God has created and you actually give it for the flourishing of others. That's what God longs us to do. You see, the truth is in Isaiah 28, it says that the farmer who farms the land actually learned how to do that from God. You see, the very reality of all that we do in work actually comes not out of nothing. Only God can do that. The very nature of all the work that you will ever do is you're taking something that God has created and you're transforming it hopefully for the flourishing of others. Yet so many of us, we have such a distorted view of work. We don't transform it for the flourishing of others. We transform all of which God has created. No matter what occupation we're in, 
and we transform it for our glory, for our renown, for our status, for our security. The Tower of Babel is a great picture of this, that they took the raw potential of all that God had and it was for themselves. You see, there's a very distorted view of work today, and so much so that we've actually separated work and play. In our American view, many of us, we work so that we can do the things that we love. We work so that we can have the money to play. We work so that we can have security. We do all these things. It becomes kind of an ends to a means. When God says, do you understand that we're going to spend all of eternity taking the raw potential of all that God has created, and we're going to do it for the flourishing of others so that others will be blessed, so that that absolutely changes what we do today. So whether you're a realtor or a stockbroker or a screenwriter, you have an opportunity in your occupation to see it as so much more than just just a job. But how do we do that? That's my final point, and I'll simply say this, that the only way that an occupation doesn't become a preoccupation is if we have an understanding of a biblical vocation. And what's a vocation? A vocation is when somebody calls you to do something, when somebody invites you to something so much larger than yourself. And we see that Jesus does this for every single one of us. He says, come, and I want you to follow after me. But He does so in a way that doesn't remove us from our occupations. He says, come and follow me in the midst of your occupation. Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Was that the last time they touched the fishing nets? No. But God called them to a fishing beyond the fishing. He's going to call you to investment banking beyond the investment banking, to a lawyering beyond the lawyering. You see, no matter what occupation you're in right now, you have an opportunity to see a higher calling, and it's a higher calling that if you respond to it, it transcends your occupation, it transcends your job, it transcends your work. It transcends all of your life so that you could do it every day and everywhere with everyone. It's a vocation of following Jesus Christ and investing the kingdom of God in a way that will last throughout all of eternity. And so whether it's in your occupation or if you're in unemployment, you have an opportunity to work in such a way that doesn't appease God but pleases God. I love the fact that adventure begins with six letters, Advent. Do we think of Advent as the beginning of an adventure? Well, the reality is is that we have a great and grand adventure that God is calling us to follow Him on. And it has begun because He has come to us. An adventure has begun because He has arrived to us and He will arrive again. And so as we live in the space between. The work that we do, the work that we see others do, if we take the raw potential of all that God has for us, the opportunities we have, and if we do it for the flourishing of others, if we see that God is inviting us to see a higher vocation, that in the midst of our occupations that we can give all of ourselves to with integrity, with, with peace. You see, the very reality is that we, as followers of Christ, should be the best baristas in town, that we should be the best screenwriters, 
that we should be the best lawyers. Not because we spend all of our energy into this thing so that we can build up a name for ourselves, but because we actually, we actually do so not for our gain or our glory, but we do it for the glory of the God who gives us this life. And so I think some of us, we put too much focus on our work, and some of us don't put enough focus on work. We put too much focus on work because we think that that's going to give us our identity. That's going to give us our security. It won't. Only God will. But some of us don't put too much energy in our work because we think, ah, this doesn't matter. I'll spend an eternity with God. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I return those emails. It doesn't matter if I have integrity in in the business place. It doesn't matter if I do the things that I'm called to do. No, all of it matters. I just, I, I envision that Jesus is, in some ways, He's planted a seed at his first advent, his first arrival, that will one day grow to the grandest of a tree that we won't be able to see until his second arrival, after the second advent. And so we live in this space between when Jesus planted this initial seed of the kingdom of God that one day we'll see in all of its glory. And as we live in the space between those two, we don't yet see with our physical eyes all of what God has for us. We don't see the grandness of that tree. And yet, Jesus, it's as if He's saying, will you come? Will you come enjoy the shade of the tree? Will you come and play with me under the tree? Will you come and do the work under the tree? Will you come and get all the supplies to build a tree swing? And some of us are saying, I don't see the tree. I don't see the tree. And Jesus, trust me, I hold the future in my hands. What I have planted will grow to an absolute glorious existence. Come now, participate with me in this space between. Some of you, as you came into the sanctuary, you saw an oak tree in the narthex, in the lobby. What is that? Well, you'll find out on Christmas Eve. A little plug to come back on Christmas Eve, I suppose. If you're watching online, hey, come on campus. You can't see the narthex streaming online. Come on to campus. But I do believe that what God has done, He will bring to completion. God always finishes what He starts. And He's inviting us now in our work and our play. You're like, wait a second, I thought this was a sermon on work and play. What, what, what about play? You've spent so much time on work. Well, the reality is this, that when you live in the fullness of what God has designed you to be, that people will look at you and they won't see the difference between your work and your play. Some of you say, what? I'm going to play as a lawyer? No, 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 I'm not talking about that. But the reality is that some of you, what you do to play is work for others. What I do to play is I go out when it's 35 degrees and I surf in very cold water with sharks. That is, oh, that's, that's fun. Some of you, that's a lot of work. I got to put on a wetsuit. I got to get up early. I got to paddle out there. It's amazing. Some of you, you play by picking up a violin. For some of you, that's absolute work. For some of you, you play by cooking for 15 hours leading up to Christmas Eve dinner. For other people, that's work. Jewish, we're going to spend all of eternity working and playing, and we're not even going to know the difference between those two, and we're just going to call it life. Whether we dance, whether we sing, whether we run, whether we skip, whether we cook, whether we create art, all those things we're going to do for all of eternity, we can begin to do that now in a way that builds the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this time. We thank You 
that one sermon can't contain the fullness of who you are. So, God, make us hungrier for Your Word. Drive us to Your Word this week, even today, whether it's Revelation 21 or Isaiah 60 or Genesis 2. God, drive us back to Your Word so that we can see the fullness of who You are. Jesus, we love You, and it's in Your mighty and matchless name we pray together and we say, Amen.